Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, thanks for joining me here on Loving Liberty. If you're catching the live broadcast, feel free to call in at 801-331-8113. If you're catching the podcast, thanks. Thanks for doing so. Maybe uh, do a couple extra clicks, share it with a friend, whatever it takes. There's a lot to cover this hour. I kind of got sidetracked on the whole uh, humor in the face of the humorless thing last hour, but... Got a couple of things to share with you today. I'm going to start with one that's kind of a heavy topic. And I don't do this to depress you, but it's because I really think there there are some things with the political circus that's going on. The political theater is actually another way that I've heard it put. Oh, the drama. Will there be impeachment? Is the president above the law? You know, th- I'm sorry. It serves the purposes of politicians to have this this passion play going on before us because it tends to keep our attention focused on them and it tends to reinforce their belief that we really are the most important people in the world and everything we do or think or tweet is of the utmost importance to you and your life. Any person who has actually looked around and, you know, calculated it, wait, how, how much do the, does what's going on in Washington actually affect me? Yeah, there are some places where you feel it, like your pocketbook, or when you go to the airport, <laughs> places like that. But for the most part, politicians doing politician things, they run in different circles than you and I do. It's entirely possible to minimize politics in your life and have a very happy, fruitful and productive existence. A lot of us just choose not to for some reason. I'll tell you one place, though, where we're all at risk. And that is in terms of our economy, particularly within uh, our, our money system. Paul Rosenberg has become a trusted voice of reason to me. I've read him for many years now. I love his take on things. I think he has a very gentle yet informed take on what's happening. And he has a recent essay called The Economy of Bandages, Splints, and Duct Tape. Now, I'm just going to warn you right up front. What I'm about to share with you is uh, not likely to reduce you to this puddle of abject fear. But it's definitely going to shake your sense that, hey, everything's sailing along pretty good. Come on, best economy in 50 years. Yeah, if you can look beyond the bandages, splints and duct tape. Here's how Paul Rosenberg puts it. He says, I've written an unusual amount about the financial systems of the world over the past month. Honestly, he says, I felt that I'd be derelict not to. Please understand that I'm not giving you prescriptions. I trust that you are capable of making your own plans. But he says, my concern is that by living inside the present financial system, people can easily believe that nothing will ever really change. He says, you might also keep in mind that I dislike the present financial system for philosophical reasons. I would much rather build a decentralized economy than remain in a rigged corporatist economy. So he says, my message to you today is a really simple one. We are not in our father's economy anymore. He says, the financial systems of the Western world are standing only because of emergency measures. They're all bandage and splint. Since 2008, the central banks of the West have spent literally trillions of dollars and euros 
to keep their economies functioning. And they haven't been able to cut that back, even though they've tried. If we went back to the normal of 1970, 1980, or 1990, the system would collapse into a heap. So, bandages and splints. He says a huge portion of all government bonds in the West, on the order of 10 or $15 trillion worth, are yielding negatively. Put in $10,000 and get 9800 back. It's almost an insanity. This has never happened before, and no one is sure about its effects over time. More bandages and splints. He says interest rates have been lower and longer than ever in recorded history. This has artificially inflated everything from house prices, who cares about anything but the monthly payment these days, to stock prices. The CEO takes a ridiculously cheap loan, buys his company's stock, buys back his company's stock. The price goes up and he gets a huge bonus. Yeah, more bandages and splints. Governments at the same time are running deficits like they never have before. And they keep doing it because profligate spending keeps things from crashing. And because insanely low interest rates keep them from facing the consequences. So still more bandage and splint. He says, I'll stop here, even though I'm quite sure I could go on for some time. And he says, beneath that. Please bear in mind that all those bandages, those bandages and splints are the surface rigging. The structural rigging is a mess, too. Gold used to be what kept the system honest. If you played games with your currency, the gold trade would nail you. But even the possibility of that ended in 1971. Stock prices back in the day were based on what were called fundamentals. Nowadays, they depend on, nowadays they depend on central banks, tweets, and algorithms. Also, back in the olden days, people retired on dividend income. That is, on the actual profits earned by companies. Nowadays, they retire based upon the aforementioned stock prices, which are more or less untethered from things like profit and losses. The secure retirement of millions, then, rests on the whims of others. And perhaps worst of all, John and Jane Doe are hip-deep in the debt game. Everyone's playing it. After all, they have loans for everything, cultivate their credit scores like their lives depend on it, and have more or less no hope of paying off their debts in their lifetimes. And whether or not people acknowledge it, if your friends are playing too, don't be rude. The collateral damage from this is serious. And so at this level, it isn't all bandage and splint. It's also rusted beams, wood bracing, and supersized duct tape. Now, he says, again, I'm not telling anyone to do anything. What I'm really doing is unburdening my conscience. He says, I have a small public platform here, and I felt obliged to make people aware of this situation. But his counsel is do as you wish, but do it with your eyes open. Okay, I'm no financial expert. If you saw my bank account or my, uh, you know, if you saw my books, you'd say, yep, he is definitely no financial expert. My wife is our bookkeeper. She is the brains of the outfit. But I assure you that uh, whatever assurances you're feeling right now that the economy is the best that it's ever been are very likely based in fantasy or wishful thinking. And that doesn't mean liquidate your stocks or sell off everything and buy gold. I'm not telling you what to do either. But I think Paul Rosenberg is doing his very best to raise a warning voice. He actually knows what he's talking about. Me? Eh, not so much. But it makes you wonder, what would I do? Is there something I could be doing differently 
if I perceived that a major financial storm was headed over the horizon. So I'm sorry to to bring the problem up and then say, well, there it is. Now that you see it, now that you're aware of it, you know, the, the ball is in your court. I don't have a nifty little solution that, hey, with this secret, you know, you can just uh, shrug it all off and pretend like it's not even happening. I don't think that's an option for any of us. But I do think that uh, we have a reckoning that is approaching. And what that's going to look like, I don't know. I talk about deja vu once in a while. And steering away from the actual man, I feel like I've lived this before. When I see gas prices where they are, when I see some of the exuberance that I'm seeing right now, it reminds me an awful lot of 2007 and early 2008. You can draw your own conclusions. Again, there are economists and there are financial analysts out there who can tell you more and more. uh, What's the negative your negative uh, negative yield curve that they keep an eye on something ain't right and government continues to spend money like there is no tomorrow we can just we can spend there's never going to be any accountability trust me there is going to be accountability at some point i don't know if it's going to take the form of a currency collapse i don't know if it's going to take the form of a major recession I just know that the the corrections which normally come in the markets have not been allowed to come. Everybody's been kicking that can down the road. When everything's going great, you know, of course, uh, the president or whoever's at the top wants to take the credit for it. When everything's going bad, uh, we're not responsible for that. I guess I'm becoming more of a believer in... You may want to start to define your wealth a little bit differently than how we've done it traditionally. Even if you just start with the premise that this isn't your father's economy. Gold and silver and precious metals, that's all fine and dandy. But I'm wondering if there are other assets that might be even more important than that. I'm thinking things like farmable land. A roof over your heads that's actually paid off. Well, with the exception of the property tax, that's a story for another show. Maybe less emphasis on keeping up with the Joneses. I don't know. I'm spitballing here, but I'm saying we have options. Heaven help us to exercise them while there's time. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Want to mention that Ammo.com is one of our sponsors here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. If you enjoy the shooting sports, if you uh, take seriously being a gun owner and you like to get training, got to have ammo. And I, I'm a firm believer. I'm, I'm one of those guys who believe, well, how much ammo is enough ammo? Um, one more box. <laughs> no matter how much you have, one more box ought to do it. So I guess the correct answer is you can't have too much. It also makes great uh, barter. You know, if there was ever, I don't know, a, I don't know, some kind of a, a monetary breakdown, the currency was devalued, ammo something that would actually hold its value very well. You can almost think of it as another kind of precious metal. 
But uh, I want to mention, too, Sam Jacobs from uh, from Ammo.com. He is one of the writers for them. will be joining me this afternoon on the Loving Liberty program at 1 o'clock Mountain Time. I would encourage you to tune in. He's going to have some great stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about the militarization of America's police. Now, I know that's going to trigger some people, but I think he has a really solid take on it. And uh, it's it's not gloom and doom so much as just an acknowledgement that something's changed. Something's different. And if you've been paying attention over the last 20 years or so, you probably have started to pick up on this. Anyhow, go to ammo.com. Patronize them. When you go to purchase something, uh, they'll give you a choice at the checkout if you want to donate 1% of your purchase to help freedom-supporting organizations. Well, guess what? Loving Liberty is one of those organizations. So if you would include us in that, we would greatly appreciate it. And I'll thank you in advance. All right, where to begin? Ah, this is the one I wanted to share with you. Yesterday on Larry Reed's show, The Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We started out his show by uh, he and I talking about a hero. And he says it's a hero to some, but not to him. That hero being Che Guevara. The Cuban revolutionary who uh, apparently died, I think it was on this date. I think it was October 9th, way back when. And yet it's a very fashionable thing. You see a lot of young people wearing their Che t-shirts. Waving flags. It's cool, man. It's trendy. And when I saw the article by Mike Gonzalez on intellectualtakeout.org, reactions to my tweet reveal the ignorant brutality of young socialists and communists. I thought this is probably worth sharing. I think, uh, didn't China just celebrate the 70th anniversary of uh, the communist takeover? Yeah, it was October 1st. That was the founding of the People's Republic of China. And people were celebrating it. Which is kind of convenient, considering that I believe in China, especially under Mao, more people died than in a dozen holocausts. Now, some people will say, well, Brian, that's a very anti-Semitic thing to say. Are you you a Holocaust denier? Not at all. I'm just saying Hitler was kind of a piker compared to his communist counterparts. Stalin killed tens of millions. Mao at least doubled and possibly tripled the number of people that were killed by Stalin. And it was done in the name of communism. But for some reason, you know, we we see the swastika and the swastika. Ooh, boo, that is bad news. That represents a truly evil ideology. And yet many tens of millions more were killed by communists, and yet communism's cool and trendy. Why do you suppose that is? Well... I want to share with you this article here from uh, Mike Gonzalez. He says an eye-opening social experiment unfolded on my Twitter feed recently that reveals a lot about America's new brand of young communists and socialists. Not to bury the lead, yes, they are still as repugnantly brutal as their predecessors in St. Petersburg and Phnom Penh, but today they add ignorance and infantilism to the toxic mix. In other words, it's their professors who are to be blamed. Our young socialists are simply the puppies that Napoleon took away in the beginning of George Orwell's novella, Animal Farm, and then unleashed on Snowball later in the book. Our beef is with today's Napoleon. That is the former 1960s radicals who've taken over America's faculties and indoctrinated America's youth. 
Platforms such as Tumblr and Twitter have amplified the problem by becoming breeding grounds where misinformation and socialist propaganda flourish. Far from keeping to their own dark corners of the Internet, the young Marxists have learned how to weaponize their collective power to bully and harass users who disagree. So here's what happened. On October 1st, the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, that is the day communist rule was formalized over the world's most populous country. Mike Gonzalez sent out this tweet. It's a picture of a Chinese PLA soldier, or I, I think this is PLA, pointing a rifle at the back of a man with his hands bound and kneeling. And the caption says, A landlord murdered at the start of the People's Republic of China. Nothing to celebrate in 70 years of communism. Now he says, The tweet, as you can see, depicts the cruelty that communists visit upon the societies they take over. It has always been thus. From the cold-blooded murder of the Russian Tsar's young children, the massacre of kulaks in Russia, the man-made Holodomor uh, famine in Ukraine, Mao's disastrous Great Leap Forward collectivization, the Paradon firing squads of Cuba, the killing fields of Cambodia, the Vietnamese boat people, Hungary in 1956, Prague in 1966, Tiananmen Square in 1989, and so on. So when he sent that tweet, he says, at first I got supportive retweets. Some were from friends who have suffered personally from Marxism and lived to tell about it. One was from Rose Tang, a brave journalist who survived Tiananmen Square and whom I met in Hong Kong in the 90s. Others were Cuban-Americans and Russian-Americans. They cover the political gamut. Rose can't stand President Donald Trump. Others like him. But then something began happening, he says, that initially left me puzzled and bemused. Then a little bit sad when I realized what it meant about some members of our present generation of youth. Thousands, no exaggeration, thousands of retweets and mentions begin to pour in from young socialists and communists celebrating the murdering of landlords, bemoaning that a good bullet was wasted when rocks abounded, and some even telling me I was next. Here's one of the responses. Killing all landlords, in quotation marks. That's the best thing Mao ever thought of. Laugh my you-know-what off. He says, my, no my notifications begin to blow up with these chilling messages throughout the day, and it hasn't stopped yet. Just when I think the users have finished, a new cycle will pick up in the middle of the night and continue through the early morning and afternoon. And it's from around the globe, too. Now, he says, initially I was bemused because most of the tweets are utter drivel. The memes that these socialists employed were infantile, like the dancing dog dancing because landlords were murdered revealing a generation that spent way too much time in front of video games and not enough time reading good books by like uh, Animal Farm or, better yet, Lord of the Flies. And, of course, they celebrated that they had owned me because, you know, ratio. But he says their responses not only revealed an alarming disregard for human life, they were also utterly ignorant of economics. An important theme was in the supposed parasitic nature of landowners. And this exposes yet again that they have not been taught the useful function of people who own and keep property and upkeep property so that those who cannot own it can have a place to live. Or perhaps it exposed that far too many socialists have never met a landlord because they're still living in their mother's basement. Hard to say for sure. But he says, of course, they never would have concluded that the very nature of owning anything was was good because they oppose the very concept of ownership to begin with. 
That was another of the themes that emerged in this exercise. To many of our hipster socialists, all property is theft. Another theme was that capitalism has produced evils and suffering for the past 300 years, including slavery. And he explained last week how the New York Times has now joined that effort to indoctrinate our youth with this lie, with its 1619 project, which takes off where Howard Zinn and others have led. And that's just it. These kids have views about property not because they're Neolithic hunter-gatherers with no possessions, but because they've been taught these things by their professors. The Martin Center explains how schools of education have been, have, of education have been radicalized. Parents have handled their, handed their bundles of joy over to ideologues who have reared them in these beliefs, like the puppies that nearly killed Snowball. There's more. We'll come back to it in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I think the wind is really kicking up out there. Those Santa Ana winds that have California authorities turning off the power. Yeah, they're kicking up in uh, my little corner of the world. I'm not in, I'm not in California. <laughs> Excuse me. I'm not in California, but uh, here in Utah. Wow, they are really kicking up. My dog is like hiding out, trying to get away from him. Who can blame him? I'm sharing with you an article about reactions to a tweet by Mike Gonzalez revealed the ignorant brutality of young socialists and communists. And I have to admit, it's kind of disheartening to think about these kids who are parroting the, the ideology or the ideological tropes of one of the most murderous schools of thought that's ever existed on the planet. In fact, not to be too dramatic here, but I, I would wager more people have been negatively impacted and suffered under Marx's ideology than any other ideology that I can think of. And boy, has it put a lot of people in the, in the ground. Tens of millions at best, maybe hundreds of millions. Now, he says it could be that some of his critics are Chinese or Russian bots, but he says the users I looked into seem to be authentic. Social media expert Lindsay Feifeld, who manages the social media activities of the Heritage Foundation and the Daily Signal, tells him that these events often are coordinated subtly, but intentionally appear organic. She explains, users know Twitter's rule for, rules for abusive behavior, so instead of sending multiple tweets, prominent users will, be, will retweet content to market for attack, adding dozens or hundreds of users who'd otherwise never see your tweet will begin spontaneously replying with mockery, liking other abusive tweets in the replies, all with the hope that they're annoying you and making you think your views are in the minority. And if you respond in any way, they will delight in doubling down, end quote. So Mike Gonzalez says, I was glad to ignore it, but many people noticed and were horrified. Users like Rod Dreher and Amy Alcon, both of whom he respects, retweeted his tweet and urged others to simply read his replies to see what socialists in 2018 are really about. Now, Fifield, he says, says that we should take heart 
She says these tweets are not at all representative of what most Americans think. Although the rising popularity of socialism with young Americans is real, Twitter is where the most extreme spend their time. And data suggests that she's right. Joe Berkowitz recently pointed out in Fast Company that surveys show that Twitter users are younger, more likely to identify as Democrats, more highly educated, and have higher incomes than U.S. adults overall. Twitter users also differ from the broader population on some key social issues. So the woke minority is just that, a minority. As the Hidden Tribes of America Project made clear in 2018. They are mostly white, super credentialed, though not actually educated, though, and deeply entrenched in the culture. And he says it's hard to believe such a coddled bunch represents a threat. Now, you may be wondering, well, what uh, what kind of solution should we have? You know, should how can we go about pushing this back or how can we provide some kind of counter to this? And I'm going to suggest that the answer may not necessarily be in politics. The answer may just simply be in each of us stepping up within our own sphere of influence. And and look, you know your sphere of influence better than anybody. If you're a teacher, it's your classroom, among other things. Most of us have family, so we, we have influence there. If you attend church, chances are there are people within your congregation with whom you have influence. The point being, you don't necessarily need politics to counter that kind of a threat. What we need to do is teach the young people in our lives correct principles, model them for them, help them understand. This is one of the things where I have such deep respect for my friend Connor Boyack. He is the founder of the Libertas Think Tank, which is, is focused on public policy reform and, and, and helping shape public policy in such a way that it removes the boundaries or removes the obstacles, rather, that government often puts in our way when it comes to personal freedom or free markets or private property, any of those kind of things. But he's also taken a very keen interest in teaching young people basic economics his Tuttle Twins books are marvelous he's actually founded a second nonprofit organization to teach kids economics at key the idea being that it's a lot easier to teach them when they are young to, to help them experience the free market hands on One of the ways that he does this is through the uh, children's entrepreneur markets. Now, these take place throughout the state of Utah. And when I say throughout the state, I mean from north to south. They have about a half dozen or more of these entrepreneurial markets for kids every summer. What makes them remarkable is it's the kids who run the markets. Yeah, the parents transport them there and back. And you'll have kids as young as five years old and maybe up to 16 years old. They're to sell items or or to to create to create a way to to make money but they choose what it is someone do some do popcorn balls one kid was doing these these immaculate cutting boards his dad has a full wood shop and the boy started taking scraps of wood and with dad's help learned how to make these beautiful beautifully finished cutting boards but the kids are the ones who call the shots when the when the entrepreneurial markets open up 
Parents are encouraged to be there and support them, but the kids get to decide. Will I bargain with somebody on this? You know, if somebody wants to dicker, will I, will I sit there and, and haggle back and forth with them? What's the proper price for what I'm doing? What if I have somebody selling spinner fidgets and I'm selling, you know, uh, fidget spinners too, you know, and, and, you know, how do I set my price so that I can be competitive? And it's all hands on. You see the beauty of it, right? See, the thinking here is if you can help kids understand these concepts young, you don't have to try to educate them out of erroneous beliefs when they become adults. And the sad truth is there are a lot of adults running around out there with erroneous beliefs that they cling to. Why? Well, it's because it's all I've known. We like to cling to what's comfortable or what we understand or what we think we understand. Better to get them started out on the right foot. Better to get these kids started out with a real understanding and a real sense of what it means to be an entrepreneur and to participate in the free market. That's going to be tough to try to convince them otherwise. In other words, these kids are going to be able to call BS when their college professor starts, you know, going off on how horrible capitalism or free market capitalism is. Or how awful it must be to own property. They're being inoculated against that collectivist mentality. And by the way, that offends some people. What uh, what you're just trying to do then is train these kids to be a bunch of conservatives. Well, you know, it's 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 helpful, I guess, to throw labels out there if it makes you feel better. But if we're going to throw labels out, would you rather they be indoctrinated as collectivists? See, I think I know what the answer is. But I'd rather see these kids influenced by their parents and by mentors and people who are close to them before they go off to the mind laundry of either public school or college. And this stuff is, is hammered into their brains. They'll at least have a fighting chance. And so I salute those who give them that opportunity. It's a little disturbing to see young people who take, you know, the, the oppression and the bloodshed that has accompanied communist regimes and celebrate it like, oh, no, it's a good thing. Or it's just it didn't work because the right people didn't do it. And I think we can see we have some young revolutionaries coming up through the ranks here in America. Antifa is probably the most visible and violent faction of it. But ideologically, they are every bit the counterpart of the Khmer Rouge. They're every bit the, the counterpart of the young Octoberists from the Soviet Union. I'd be shocked if they don't carry Mao's little red book with them. But we're not supposed to notice that murderous ideology that links all of those movements. So, you know the difference. You know better. Now you and I can go forth and hopefully uh, affect some, some change on a positive level. Again, we're not trying to require kids to, to believe this way or that way. So much as to inspire them. That's the difference. People who are inspired to embrace something do so because they chose to do so. People who are required to, well, 
More often than not, it's just because they were ground down rather than convinced. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right, I'm going to segue into something that may seem kind of detached from what I've talked about here earlier, which was some pretty heavy stuff. Communism, death, and the young teens who think it's cool. How about teens with strong family ties can ward off depression? My wife is a middle school teacher, and one of the things that I consistently hear her express concern about is the amount of anxiety and depression that her students are dealing with. And I believe this is true up through, uh, you know, the high school years as well. I mean, I worry about it in my own kids. I, I see them struggle with things. And this article by Ping Chen and Kathleen Mullen Harris on intellectualtakeout.org, I think has some great insights. They start by telling us depression is a leading cause of disability and disease for people around the world, and it often begins in adolescence, especially for females. It may continue or recur into adulthood and tends to become a lifetime chronic health condition. More than 300 million people suffer from this mental health disorder worldwide. And they point out depression isn't just about feeling blue. It can also harm one's social relationships, their school or work or physical health. Poor mental health and depressive symptoms might even be associated with the recent increase in midlife premature deaths of despair due to suicide, alcohol, and drugs. And although the treatment methods and intervention continue to advance, many depressive conditions remain irreversible. The push for prevention and early, affordable, and feasible intervention is stronger than ever, especially for young people. Now, the authors are both social demographers, meaning they study family processes and health. They use a life course perspective in their research, meaning that they use longitudinal data to follow individuals as they move through various stages of life and to examine how the social context they experience influence their health. Recently, they were interested in understanding how mental health changes from adolescence through mid-adulthood. They wanted to see if they could identify family processes that might protect teens from depression in adolescence and later. They found that close and cohesive family relationships, understanding, and shared good times protected them then as well as later. Interesting, huh? We thought togetherness was just kind of a quaint concept. No, actually, it could be good for their health. It's well known from the scientific evidence that close family relationships reduce the risks of depression during adolescence, a life stage when depression often begins, especially for girls. And these researchers were interested to know whether the mental health benefits of close and cohesive family relations in adolescence lasted into young adulthood. So they used longitudinal data from a nationally representative sample to address this question. The family context is a key area that draws wide scholarly and public attention for early intervention efforts. Most research on the role of the family 
context for depression, focuses on risk factors like neglect or abuse or even financial insecurity. But they wondered, however, whether preventative efforts or preventive efforts rather could be more effective if focused on protective factors. And they could not find major studies that could shed enough light on the topic. Some of the cross-sectional studies with clinical and community samples suggest that being part of a close and cohesive family in adolescence helps alleviate depression system symptoms rather for teenagers. But does that protective effect last long into adulthood? In other words, after adolescents move out of their parents' house and embark on their independent lives? This intriguing and pressing question remains unknown due to a dearth of longitudinal studies that follow the same people over time. So the study which they published two days ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics is, as far as they know, the first to examine the topic in a nationally representative sample that tracked individuals over a 30-year life course from early adolescence to midlife. And their findings suggested that, yes, the protective effort not only helps in the tough teen years, but also protects later. Some of the data they used comes from the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to Adult Health. It's a nationally representative study that followed over 20,000 adolescents starting in 1995 into adulthood. The group of adolescents who started in the cohort have been re-interviewed five times, adding valuable knowledge about development over the course of life. The new data from 2017's round of interviews enabled them to examine how what happens in adolescence matters later in our mental health. And their findings provide a new contribution to the research on early family experiences and lifetime depression, as well as insights into how depression can be developed or prevented rather from developing in a lifetime ill into a lifetime illness. What they found was this. First, they found gender differences in depression over time. Females experience significantly higher levels of depressive symptoms than males between early adolescence and their early 40s. The overall trajectory of depressive systems was high in adolescence. It fell in the early 20s and then slowly rose again in the late 30s. The growth growth curve of depression is flatter for men than it is for women. Teenage girls, they say, are vulnerable to high levels of depression during middle to late adolescence. Teen boys, by comparison, experienced a shorter period of depression in late adolescence. Women then experienced the highest levels of depression in their late 30s. Men's highest levels of depression occurred in their mid-30s to early 40s in the face of increasing challenges from work, family, and social life. But the researchers here said our primary interest was to examine whether cohesive family relationships in adolescence protect young people from depression in adulthood and how long those protections last. Their findings indicate the mental health benefits of cohesive family relationships during adolescence last through midlife. Individuals who experienced positive adolescent family relationships had significantly lower levels of depressive symptoms from early adolescence to midlife, meaning late 30s to early 40s, than did those who experienced less positive family relationships. Now, they also see the benefit working differently for men and women. Women benefit more from positive adolescent family relationships than men, especially during adolescence and in their early 20s. But men with low parent-child conflict benefit for a longer time throughout young adulthood than women. 
So living in a cohesive home, having someone around who understands and pays attention, even having fun together as family, can build up warmth, trust, and attachment between the family members and adolescents, and even positive feelings for teens. The absence of parent-child conflict reinforces parental support and approval for them. Close relations may provide sources of social and emotional support that encourages the development of skills for coping with changing and cumulative stressors. Their research also found that uh, they also emphasized that the urgent need is there for preventive interventions of depression in adolescent family life. Adolescence is a critical life stage where profound transformations in neurological, biological, cognitive, and social development take place. These profound changes during adolescence make teens especially vulnerable to the development of lifetime depression. Public health initiatives can teach and encourage parents and family members to nurture positive family relationships with their adolescents. Programs can be developed to promote family cohesiveness for adolescents by providing tips on how families can show affection and understanding, how they can spend time together and even work through conflict. This preventive approach will be most effective in fostering long-term healthy mental development into adulthood. Now, the study doesn't imply that adolescents in less cohesive families are doomed to a lifetime of depression. It's because depression is an extremely complex mental disorder. No one knows exactly what causes it. Factors like genetics or abuse or serious illnesses can increase risks of depression as well. Teens may be able to find similar sources of social support and gain coping skills through other social connections with friends in religious or other institutions and in the local community. And they conclude by pointing out the skills and strategies that youth learn to cope with emotional problems may last throughout life. In fact, they can continue to promote mental health well into adulthood and help to prevent negative outcomes and premature deaths due to suicide, alcohol, or drugs in middle age. I just found that really thought-provoking. And again, this is an article on intellectualtakeout.org from Ping Chen and Kathleen Mullen-Harris. I'll post this with the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. But if you have young people in your life, this might be worth taking a look at. Might be worth strategizing. What can we do to strengthen those family ties to give them a better shot of avoiding depression, not only in the now, but especially later on in their lives? Stick around. CSC Talk Radio is coming up with Beth Ann Schoenberg after these messages. Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.